Shut up and sit down. Listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. Here's your host, John Lund. Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. I'm your host, John Lund, the multimedia sports enthusiast, bringing you this sports show. What's it like to be an All-American at Notre Dame and win the Super Bowl with the Green Bay Packers? We'll talk about that and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve on episode 118 of The Bridge. (laughs) Greetings and salutations, everyone. Welcome back to another installment of The Bridge, coming to you live on Sports Radio America here on Wednesday, August 15th, 2018, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern Time to bring you the best and brightest of the sports world. That's right, The Bridge is live on Sports Radio America Monday through Friday with a brand new show on Wednesday nights on the East Coast, though the show is technically pre-recorded. If you missed the live show, the podcast version of The Bridge is available after that broadcast, which means you can find the newest episode and additional content from the show later on Wednesday night on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts under The Bridge Sports Podcasts or on my website at londonbridge.com. I'll save all the ways you can listen to The Bridge and where you can find the show until the end of this latest installment. If anything, you can call in or text into the show 24-7 at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Contact the show with your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you'll be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. Now, loyal listeners of this show know that now we usually transition into a couple of segments before getting into the interview with the week's guests and closing out the show. Well, it's time to change things up. Oh, say change it up. Change it up. We'll still close out the show with a movie review this week with Mission Impossible Fallout. But first... Let's get down to business. This week's guest is Aaron Taylor. He's a two-time All-American at Notre Dame, won a Super Bowl with the Green Bay Packers, and is now a college football analyst for CBS Sports Network, as well as an on-air talent for ACC Radio on Sirius XM Channel 371. I've had the pleasure of working with Aaron through ACC Radio, and now the added pleasure of getting to chat about his football career and life after it. He was part of some highly successful teams while on the offensive line at Notre Dame in the 90s, then got to block for one Brett Favre during a couple of his MVP seasons and two runs to the Super Bowl, one a win and one unfortunately lost. We'll talk in depth about both of those paths and the challenges faced along the way, if he's been able to get over a couple of the games he's been on the losing end of, hanging up his cleats to close out his NFL career and so much more. You can follow Aaron on Twitter. He's at Aaron Taylor CFB. That's A-A-R-O-N-T-A-Y-L-O-R-C-F-B. And without further ado, let's get into that interview. We're here with Aaron Taylor. He is a two-time All-American and Lombardi Award-winning offensive guard and team captain for Notre Dame, who then went on to win the Super Bowl with the Green Bay Packers and is now a college football analyst for CBS Sports and a friend of ACC Radio, which is where we made our connection. Aaron, thanks so much for joining the show. How are you? I'm doing great, John. Thanks for having me, partner. I'm looking forward to this. Uh, It's a pleasure, and there's plenty of things to get into from what you've been able to do, not only on the gridiron, but outside of it as well. 
And I wanted to start by turning back the clocks a little bit, speaking of football, and just ask straight up why you decided to pursue football. What was it about that sport that made you passionate about it and something that you wanted to pursue as a career? Well, it was the only one left that somebody with my body type and athleticism could play, quite frankly. Uh, I kind of was a follower, and and I had gotten into some trouble early on in high school. And that was back uh, in the mid-'80s when I was in, I think, seventh or eighth grade. And I got the nickname Fridge after Refrigerator Perry, of course, William Perry, the the very famous defensive lineman for the Bears that scored a touchdown on that great 85 team. And it kind of was – I was built for it, I think, physically, but mentally I I wasn't really so – I got kicked out of school, basically. I got kicked out of the house. I was a DNF student. I wasn't just making good choices uh, across the board. So my mom asked me what it is that I wanted to do with my life. And I said, I don't know. I want to play pro football. And she said, well, how do you do that? And I said, well, you just play in college. They draft you just give you a bunch of money. Oh, they just draft you and give you a bunch of money. Does everybody get drafted? No, just the best guys. All right, well, how do you get to college? And she just kind of walked me back to the point where it was pretty clear that the choices, actions, and, and decision-making were leading to bad consequences for me and that I needed to change that. And from that point on, literally that night, it was like a after-school movie uh, because I see this show about the school called De La Salle across the bay. And I'm like, see, mom, that's the type of school that I need to be at. And lo and behold, one thing led to another. She had a friend two days later at work ask her if she knew anybody that could rent a house in Concord, which was right down the street from De La Salle. And Literally, once I identified that football is what I wanted to play, even though I only played as a sophomore in high school for one year, from my junior year on, it's uh, been the way of life. And I think the harder I worked, the better I got. My grades improved tremendously. And, you know, two years later, from going from a DNF student being kicked out of the house, I had a full scholarship to the University of Notre Dame where I graduated in three and a half years. So uh, life can change pretty quickly when you're pretty clear about what it is you want. And, I'm still on scholarship, man. Football's been the gift that's kept on giving, and uh, it literally changed the course of my life with what it's been able to afford me, what it's been able to teach me, and hopefully at this point in my life where I'm around second base, hopefully what I'm able to give back a little bit. To hit on that changing point of your life and when you were younger in life, you mentioned the importance of your mother, and you've told a story where around 14 she basically kicked you out of the house and that was someone that had raised you as a single mom since I believe you were two and, and basically said to you, Hey, you've got two choices here. You can keep doing what you're doing or you can come back home and figure things out. And that's a life changing moment for anyone that is forced with that decision, especially at the age of 14. But it was one that eventually you both reconciled in a sense, came back home and, and really changed things from there. How much of an influence can you give to your mother on just the life that you were able to lead from that and then moving forward? As a parent myself, John, I have no idea how she did what she was able to do, including having the courage to kick me out of the house. Everybody that she talked to told her, do not do it. You're going to lose him. The streets are going to take him just like all the other kids, just like all his friends don't do it. But she trusted her gut and she trusted her instinct. And I think deep down, I was a good kid, man. I just wanted to fit in. We had moved around every two years. So I was always a new kid in school. I was mixed. My mom was white. My dad was black. So I really struggled with my identity there. Am I too black, too white, not black enough, not white enough. And it was hard growing up as a kid. So I think, you know, hanging out with the crowd that I hung out with, you know, 
they took all comers. So she was able to sift through that and help me navigate it and do for me uh, what I was unable or unwilling to do for myself, if you will. So in short, man, I hold her everything. I think a parent's job really is to prepare your children not to need you. And she did that. And there was times she had to pat me on the butt. There was times she had to kick me in my ass. There were times she did both in the same moment. But uh, I wouldn't be where I am today. I wouldn't be the parents that I am if it weren't for the lessons and the, the commitment that she showed to do whatever it is that it took to make sure that we had what we needed growing up. And there was a lot of things I wanted, but there was never anything I needed. And I give her a lot of credit for the person, the mom and, and the woman that she was to make sure that we got through what we needed to get through. Now, I'm fast forwarding a little bit, but when you were at Notre Dame and had a nationally televised game and she's watching from California, did you ever get the chance to do the I love you, mom on TV? <laughs> no, but I did have the, the, the spring game before my senior year. Uh, I, I cut a towel and wrote hi, mom on that. And I do have a picture of that uh, somewhere in a pile of my old Notre Dame pictures. And I mean, Doing anything to call attention to yourself was a big no-no with Coach Holtz. But for some reason, I guess maybe as a senior captain, I had an All-American season my junior year that year before. Uh, we were allowed to have a little bit of fun. I didn't play much that spring, although I did move to left tackle, and that proved to be a very difficult positional change, even though I had played left guard for the two previous years. You think it's only one position over, but if there's a quite a bit of difference being a guard where you got cushy bodies around you to being on an island out on the left side. But nonetheless, man, I was had a little bit of fun. I sent her that picture. She loved it. And I, I think Aaron Taylor's mom and the Aaron Taylor story and all that stuff that gets re you know, retreaded uh, over and over during my collegiate years uh, was certainly warranted. She appreciated. She she was a little bit of a celebrity and star in her own right. So I'm sure uh I'm glad just nothing went to her head because she got a lot of coverage back in the day as well. <laughs> Did you do the buy my mom a house, buy my mom the car story when you made it in the NFL? Was there something that you gave back to her that was memorable? Of course, man. I mean, I think that's all of, of professional athletes. Part of their dream, right, is not just getting to the NFL, but what that opportunity can afford you. And Again, I mentioned we moved around quite a bit, and it was always for one reason or another. You know, we the the house was getting sold from one person to another, so we had to move back. People had moved away out of the country, and we, you know, were basically house sitting for them, paying them rent for a couple of years, and they decided to come back early. I mean, there was always some weird circumstance, but we moved around a lot. So having a place to call home was really important to her. And she indicated that um, she had wanted a house of her own. And she actually ended up moving to Green Bay, which <laughs> retrospectively wasn't probably the best of decisions for her or for me. But I did end up buying her a house there and she got to design it. We built it from the ground up. She got to pick every single color and option and feature in that house. And uh, I think to this day is one of the more positive, memorable experiences of her life. Before getting into your senior season at Notre Dame and other seasons as well, why Notre Dame in general? I know living in California, you went out to see USC and could have stayed in a warmer climate. Assuredly, upon visiting Notre Dame, it was probably like, why is it so miserable here and cold? <laughs> what stood out about Notre Dame for you? Well, I tell you what, man, at the time they graduated 97% of their student athletes and their football players. And I wasn't the best student in the world, 
but I knew I wasn't 3%. So if I went to Notre Dame at the end of the day, I was going to leave with a degree. And that was important to me. That was really part of my decision-making process about where I wanted to go to school. I had no idea whether or not I was talented enough to play in the NFL. And I had, of course, aspirations, but um, it, it was something that seemed so far away. I, I kind of the way I make calculated decisions, right? Like the worst case scenario for me picking Notre Dame is I'm going to leave four years later with a college degree. That's not a bad choice and, and a bad way to make decisions. But I think secondarily to that, that was the first year of the NBC contract where they were televising all of their home games. That was unprecedented at the time. And that meant that mama got to see me, you know, six, seven times per year, coupled that with the fact that they played Stanford USC in alternating years in California. That was at least once per year where she could watch me play face to face. Uh, so that was it in person. So all of those things, I think, collectively led to me um, eventually and ultimately making the decision to go there. But it was my athletic director, Tom Bowen, who's now Memphis's AD, was my athletic athletic director at De La Salle. And he was a Notre Dame grad. And some people don't know, he was in the seminary for his first two years when he was at Notre Dame. But then he met a girl, I think, and figured out pretty quickly that maybe the seminary wasn't for him, but still loved the school, decided to stay. And it was really at his urging of me just taking a trip there. And, you know, I had my five you know, trips, official visits that I had. Notre Dame happened to be my first one. And even though it was in early December and the coldest I'd ever been in my life coming out of California, when I landed and saw that golden dome in the night and stepped on campus and started beating the people like in my bones, I knew that that's a place that I wanted to be. And I committed right there on the spot. We mentioned this on ACC radio that college game day announced they're going back to South Bend when the Fighting Irish hosts Michigan to celebrate, I believe, the 25th anniversary. And you dropped the bomb that you were at the first when they did this back 25 years ago and got to run out of that tunnel, though very young at the time. I just want to know what it's like, and even as the years went on, to run out of that tunnel at home with that helmet on, with that jersey, with the play like a champion today, what's it like being in that atmosphere playing for Notre Dame? It was surreal. And I mean, even now, running out of the tunnels that I have and, you know, Super Bowls and things, it still is among the most memorable in my life. I, it was a big deal because we had a really talented freshman class. I mean, Brian Young, who's a future Hall of Famer, was in that classroom. Bettis and I came together as freshmen. He's already uh, an NFL Hall of Famer. I mean, we had some dudes on that team and some guys that played pretty early in Jerome and Bryant and Greg Lane and Jeff Burris and Tim Ruddy were among those guys. But to just to be able to dress and actually feel like you were part of the team was a big deal. And we had to practice quick cows and where the offensive line would warm up and what was going to go through. So we had done that a couple different times before the game. But you can feel the energy. And I think what the fan at home that has never played sports uh, of any kind and maybe on that level, you there's a palpable energy that we feed off of that we can sense as players you know and sense that something big is about to happen and you're part of that and that's i think the feeling that we covet i think that's what draws us to the sport that we're all meaningful parts of the team maybe not the most important part but a really important part so to be a freshman and have the opportunity to run out against michigan under the lights which was extremely rare at the time for notre dame because we didn't even have built-in lights we had to truck them in was surreal. So we, you walk down, you know, you hit the play like a champion signed 
uh, play like a champion today sign. And there's like three or four more steps as you make that left and go down. You walk in the tunnel and there was just this glow at the end of the tunnel where the lights were. You could kind of see people off into the distance. And we got together and started to huddle up. And, you know, Holtz was there. And I forget the player. Um, it might have been Michael Stonebreaker that broke us down where we ran out of the tunnel for that first time. But I remember running out through the tunnel and some of the Michigan players were already on the field and they were big dudes like they were grown ass men <laughs> and they were wearing these ugly ass blue and yellow helmets. <laughs> but I remember being all starry eyed like, holy smoke, that, like that's actually Michigan. Like I'm on the field. The Michigan football players are on. Like I was in awe, so clearly not in the right mindset to play that night. If I'm being in awe of the, of the guys that I've, you know, hopefully earned the right to be on the same field as, but that was the start of a of a long four year journey that would have many memories for me. But it started with just the realization that, holy shit, man, I'm part of something special, and I made the right choice, and it felt good and. You know, I scrapped my way to get to second team that year and started the very next year as a sophomore. And, you know, that uh, kind of pink cloud, starry eyed stuff leaves pretty quickly when there's consequences and you're playing. You got Jerome Bettis behind you that if you miss your block, you're going to get a foot up your butt. So uh, but that first game, man, I'll never forget it. It was surreal. I'll focus on a couple games from senior year and emotions will run high and low as you can probably imagine but before getting <laughs> to the games themselves you mentioned moving from left guard to left tackle something that offensive line coach Joe Moore was the head of and Joe Moore in general meant a lot to the offensive line meant a lot to you and inspired you in a sense to also go out and create the Joe Moore award which is given now to the best college offensive lineman in the game each year what did he mean to you, especially at that point in your career, to be surrounded by him, to get to know him not only as a coach but as a person, and then to go on and create a award in his remembrance to sort of keep him in everybody's mindset as well? Yeah. Um, Joe got me to be the best version of myself, and, and oftentimes against my own will. And that was his the secret to his sauce. That's what he was so good at, was getting all of us to perform at our peak and optimal levels. If we were a walk-on or an All-American, it didn't matter. Joe was going to find a way to get the most out of you that he possibly could. And for a lot of us, myself included, I had some confidence problems. And Joe was really good about repeating things and practicing fundamentals so much that when he finally got out there, you didn't have any choice but to be successful because you had put in that work. So I think at the time, I mean, we all hated him. We were trying to figure out ways to cut the brakes on his car, or pour sugar in his gas tank, and even <laughs> you know get some dynamite and maybe blow him up. But we were too scared that if we killed him, he would haunt our houses forever and still make us crab and, and put us through all the, the rigmarole that he did while we were there. But um, I, I'll never forget the moment that I was a senior. And there was a, a week the year before where we did something called the toughness drill. And I'll tell the story quickly for the sake of the listeners. But long story short, it was a three-on-one drill where each offensive lineman had a guy on his left shoulder, a guy in a four-point stance on his right shoulder, and a linebacker behind him. And our job was merely to block them. So obviously on the snap of the ball, each of us got pushed backwards because it ended up being three-on-one. But Joe Moore's thought was, you guys aren't going to block on Saturday. We're going to block on Monday. We're going to block on Tuesday. We're going to block on Wednesday. And his point was, we don't have the luxury to not get it done on Saturday. We got to get it done every day. 
And until you guys figure that out, we're going to get after it. So making matters worse, I think we ran for 250 yards, but he was just pissed and trying to make a point. So he made us do it. But we would go through this rite of passage as a senior, and he, he brought me to the side. He said, hey, Taylor, you remember that day we did a toughness drill? <laughs> he had this old kind of grizzled laugh. He was a chain smoker, later died of cancer, but from Pittsburgh. So a shot in the beer guy, just blue collar, salt of the earth, beautiful human being, like old school as old school gets. He said, remember doing that toughness drill? And I'd make you do like 20 reps in a row. And then you'd look at me and I'd say, do five more. And you'd give me everything you had. You gave five. And then you'd look at me thinking you were done. And I'd say five more. And I just kept saying five more, five more, five more. Are <laughs> you remember that? And like at this point, I want to punch him in his face because I am remembering it. And it was by far the most tired I'd ever been in my entire life in any situation. But he goes on to say, the reason I did that was because I wanted you to know that at some point in the fourth quarter, when you didn't think you had any more to give, and we called a play that was running behind you, that you knew that you had five more in you. And I wanted you to know then when you were long done and played football and had been in the NFL, that when you're a parent and a father, a husband, and the, the, the chips are stacked against you, that when you don't think you have any more to do, that you would know from that moment forward that you always had five more in you. And I get choked up every time I tell that story because Joe saw something in me and in all his players that we weren't able to see in ourselves. And he was masterful at finding a way to get us to know who the hell we were and what we were capable of. And it's a reason why he sent 52 players in 18 seasons to the NFL. That's an average of three per year. He got guys and sent guys that had no business being on the next level, but they would get a look because of what Joe was able to get out of them as people first, football players second. Joe has meant everything to me, and that's why we created the Joe Moore Award to honor him, because it's important that people understand who he was, but more importantly, what he stood for, that he was a coach and good coaches are good teachers. And to celebrate the principles of toughness and teamwork, those are things worth celebrating. And I couldn't think of a fighter man's name to be on that big trophy, college football's biggest, than Joseph Moore. It's a great story. It's great to have that award. Can you also let the listeners know how big that award is? I don't think it's going to fit on, say, the bookshelf <laughs> in the living room. It's uh, it's college football's biggest. Uh, we, we thought at the time, and I think we outthought ourselves here a little bit, that if it takes five to earn it, it should take five to lift it. So altogether, it's well over 800 pounds. It's seven feet tall when it sits on the pedestal. It's six feet long. It's two feet deep. Uh, it's impressive. You can Google it. It's sitting in the uh, Goog Center at Notre Dame. Uh, the Fighting Iris earned it last year. Um, Alabama's earned it in our inaugural year. Iowa won it in between. So these are proven programs that are blue bloods that, you know, have a long histories of good physical offensive lines. But it's uh, it's impressive. But I'm the guy that gets on the plane and gets the moving truck and ends up moving this thing from campus to campus each year. And, and sometimes I wish, man, maybe we should have made this a little bit smaller. But <laughs> So does the guy that has to polish the trophies in those rooms at those universities and colleges when he's going around like, oh, great, we won this award this year. I can't wait. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a little, uh, little bittersweet at times for all of us, I guess. So senior year, week 11. You guys are undefeated, and you play in what's deemed the game of the century. So you've got that on your resume. Florida State also undefeated. You guys win the game 31-24. 
things are looking up for a run at the national championship. Except the next week, Boston College wins on a last second field goal and beats you guys by two, ending the national championship dreams. Have you gotten over that game yet? All right, John, this has been a great interview. Man. <laughs> I appreciate you having me on. <laughs> Honestly, there are very few regrets that I have in my life as a man, as an athlete. That is on the Mount Rushmore of my regrets. Coach Holtz, so poignantly, the four years that we were on campus, and I'm sure he's done this on every team, he would talk about the fact that there's nothing worse in life than a missed opportunity, man. And that was the biggest missed opportunity of certainly my Notre Dame career, if not my entire athletic career. We were so talented and so good and had so much leadership. It baffles me how we could not pull it together to beat a good but not great Boston College team at home. When I look back, there were things that we did differently. We got away from our process. I talked ad nauseum about Joe Moore and how old school he was and how he kept things simple. And it was all about picking the two or three things that you do and repeating them over and over and over until they were natural. He was, he was the epitome of that. But yet that week we were allowed to watch the Florida state game film by ourselves as a unit and have fun. There were no corrections made. So we were good enough to where we made the corrections, but all of us programmatically started doing things a little bit different after we had beaten Florida State. We put a lighted number one up on top of Grace Tower. We had a midweek pep rally where several of us spoke. We changed things. And in the right circumstances against a very good team, we waited a little too long, a little too late. We ended up scoring three touchdowns in the last six minutes of that ball game we woke up and we realized what was going to happen and Derek Mays made one of the most amazing catches I've ever seen in my life to extend one of those drives but at the end of the day we, we had an interception that hit Pete Bursich in the hands and he dropped it Pete was a phenomenal player and I think he led the team in dang interceptions that year but it was just one misstep after another across the board the net result was we missed the single greatest opportunity, the very thing that our class that ended up having 17 or 18 of the 25 guys go on to the NFL in some form or fashion, that we fell short for the national championship because we ended the season 12-1 and with the crown jewel being our victory head-to-head over Florida State. Now, what's interesting is that Florida State finished the year 12-1 and with their one loss being to us. So we beat them head-to-head with the same record. We both won our bowl games, except at the time, they elected Bobby Bowden to be the national champion because college football didn't determine its national champion on the field. So very shortly thereafter, it was the Bowl Coalition, the Bowl Alliance, then the BCS, and now what we have is a college football playoff. And that game and the result in the national championship that year is largely responsible for what it is we have today because there was so much controversy about how can you award a national champion to a team above another team that finished with the same record and won a marquee head-to-head matchup. So as bittersweet as that is, it eventually has led to what I think is a much better product on the field now where college football finally does determine its national champion on the field. But again, man, that was unfortunately among the hardest days and hardest memories and hardest missed opportunities in my entire life. So you would have beaten Nebraska in the Orange Bowl is what you're saying? 
Yeah, that, uh, <laughs> that that's what what it would have been. But instead, we played in the Cotton Bowl against Texas. A&M. Hey, two years in a row though, Texas A and M Cotton Bowl. <laughs> Yay, we're number two. <laughs> There's also another funny anecdote, not to say that any of those are funny in the Cotton Bowl being number two, but you played in a snowball with Penn State. Yeah. Was it kind of annoying that you couldn't tell that story when you went to Green Bay because, you know, the the ice bowl? Yeah, well, that was my junior year, and I believe it was on my birthday. November 14th was that Saturday, right? So I think I was turning 20 that day. And it didn't start snowing the whole game, but towards the very end, it started to snow. And if you look at those pictures of Penn State and Notre Dame, I guess that had to be 92, uh, they are epic. And if you've ever played football when it's snowing, everything gets muffled and quiet and soft. And the, the snow absorbs all the sound, so it creates this really surreal visual this auditory and certainly tactically you're playing in this, you know, extremely cold weather. I think we're all used to that, but it was a really unique experience. So to get the opportunity, not only to play that game, but to win it in the fashion that we did first with Jerome Bettis getting hit, you know, for a check down to get the touchdown, but then taking the timeout and going for the two point conversion for the win. And then I get beat right off the snap by Toyoka Jackson, who had a long, illustrious NFL career. And I just slipped, and he just beat me straight up. There's no excuses. He got me, man. I think I sat too far inside, if I remember. He got a hold of my shoulder and went right around. So Rick Myers scrambling for his life. And it was like in slow motion, it was, Rick, throw the ball. Please don't get sacked. And Rick, to his credit, man, I mean, was so mobile, you know, one of those kind of sneaky mobile, almost Andrew Luck type mobile guys. And we ran the, the option at, at, at some there at the time. So, you know, he had some running ability and he just started rolling to his right. And there was Reggie Brooks, who had the, by far the worst hands on the team. Reggie couldn't catch a damn cold in that snowy weather, <laughs> let alone a ball. And Rick sidearms it and Reggie lays out and makes an unbelievable diving catch and then immediately gets dogpiled. So I went from thinking I gave up a sack and lost the game to having one of my most positive memories, and it happened on my birthday. So I always like to think that the football gods were looking out for me on that afternoon. And you've got Jerome Bettis standing behind that O-line, and Lou Holtz calls a pass on that two-point conversion. Now that's that's more gutsy, too, not only just for going for two. He could have had a Pete Carroll moment before it actually happened in the Super Bowl. There's no question, and and, and I think that was part of whole. Like you look like a genius when it works out, right? Of course. Imagine if Reggie if Reggie drops that. Think about that, right? And that's that's Joe Paterno on one sideline, Lou Holtz on the other, in this epic, iconic game between these two blue blood programs. And he calls a pass play to win the ball game when he's got us as an offensive line with all Americans on it in a dang future NFL Hall of Famer that he's got the option to turn around and hand the ball off to. But that was Holtz's genius. And I think if you want to win it all, you got to risk it all. And Holtz was a calculated risk taker. And part of his creativity offensively is why we were so successful. And it, you know, bared itself out 
in that meaningful game that we thankfully won. The draft comes in 1994, and you're taken in the first round by the Green Bay Packers. How did that process go for you? Did they get in contact with you beforehand and say that you were their guy? What was that couple-week process like before the draft and then getting picked by them? It was interesting. After my junior year, there was some talk about whether or not I was going to come out early, and I just wasn't ready, and I knew that, and I think a lot of other people do it. Um, And it was smart for me to stay particularly playing tackle and showing some versatility my senior year but I was supposed to go the fifth or sixth overall to Tampa the Rams Tampa the Rams Tampa the Rams they both need tackles Aaron Taylor played tackle when Lombardi Tampa the Rams well on draft day the fifth pick comes and it's not Aaron Taylor the sixth pick comes and it's not Aaron Taylor again Well, after that, I did the proverbial spiral, right? There were no teams that really needed offensive linemen after that. What I didn't know at the time and now know is that I wasn't an NFL tackle by any stretch of the imagination. I didn't have the build. I didn't have the arm length. I didn't have the athleticism, quite frankly, even though I was a pretty athletic player. So I was a guard. So I dropped and continued to drop. uh, For many hours after that, and eventually I get a phone call. Now, At my house, thank God I didn't go to New York and and do the dog and pony show. I elected to stay home with a couple high school coaches, a couple buddies in my living room. And, you know, I I had a Heineken and every pick would go by and I'd have another Heineken. So I think by the time the Packers called, when they told me they were trading up with Miami from the number 20 pick, I was probably half in the bag. And I remember talking to Ron Wolf, and I remember my agent, Don Yee, who represents Tom Brady and has been in the news and, and very outspoken on a lot of issues. Um, Don giving me a call and, and saying, hey, you're going to be a Green Bay Packer. And I was so damn relieved that I got drafted anywhere, let alone to Green Bay. I can't tell you. Now, I didn't know anything about the franchise. I didn't know who the heck a Brett Favre was. I didn't know how good of a roster or or Reggie White or any of the things that they were doing to build us, to position us, to get ready to finally be able to beat the Dallas Cowboys and get to a Super Bowl. I didn't know any of that. I was just happy to get drafted. It was in Green Bay. I had driven through there and spent some time because Jim Flanagan, an old teammate of mine, was from Door County, so I went home with him one Easter. So I knew a little bit about the area, Um, but I would learn very quickly what that place had to offer and how lucky I was to be at the right place at the right time and the right organization, because I'm so glad I didn't go anywhere else. Had I gotten drafted one spot higher or one spot lower, I wouldn't have a Super Bowl ring and I wouldn't have the memories and the friendships that I created while I was there. And just another testament to just how blessed and lucky I've been to do the things that I've been able to do. Once again, I'm just, you know, graced with being at the right place at the right time. And Green Bay is the perfect example of that. And I still go back. They still fly me back. I still have friends that I see to and talk to regularly there. The orthopedic surgeon, Pat McKenzie, is still a friend. Like, there are people that were in that organization that still work there. LaFon still answers the phone. It's it's unbelievable it's really like a collegiate organization in the NFL and uh, among the brightest and sometimes darkest times of my life. In the prime of that really small dynasty, you can call it in the mid nineties, there was a season where I believe green Bay's offense pretty much led in every category. And the defense was also allowing the fewest points in the NFL to go along with that. How was practice? Let's just put it like that. (laughs) It's uh, it was heated, man. Like, you know, we've had different guys on ACC today and, and, 
talking about, particularly with the Miami football players, where they talk about, oh, man, the toughest games we played were on Green Tree, meaning their practice field. Well, it was a lot like that. I mean, I had Gilbert Brown and Santana Dotson and Reggie White, George Coons at the linebacker position. I mean, there were some dudes on that side of the field. Our safeties and corners were big and physical because that was the trend back at the time, particularly with the Michael Irvins that, you know, they had the Terrell Owens that uh, San Francisco had. Those are the NFC teams that we had to build. But I mean, Chris Carter in Minnesota, the, the Detroit Lions, like everybody had these big, tall physical receivers. So you had to be on your A game. Now, luckily, Mike Holmgren was a West Coast offense guy. So we would take the pads off probably mid-October and only have them for nine on seven and then immediately do one-on-one pass rush uh, on the offensive and defensive line. And we do, you know, two live reps, basically. So they would take care of your body in the NFL because it is a long season. And that just kind of philosophically worked for that. But there were some unfortunate uh, unfortunate circumstances where it turned out in practice I had to block Reggie White a couple of times, and uh, that didn't go so well. What is your biggest memory from the Super Bowl win in Super Bowl Thirty One? That's a very broad question, but there's probably tons of memories from it. So the first thing that comes to mind from that. Man, the end, when it was over, when the confetti was coming down, we were on the field in our four-minute offense. We got a first down. We were able to kneel the ball, run the clock out. New England was out of timeouts. And I remember the confetti coming down. And I love it because there's an NFL film shot of the, you know, Super Bowl 31 recap video that came out that shows me kind of pirouetting with my arms up, looking up to the sky with my eyes closed and just like feeling and looking at the confetti coming down. Because I I remember distinctly that when the game ended, the first thought that came through my head was, oh, my God, is that it? Did we do it? Is it over? Like, for real? That was the first time in my life that there was no next week. No run to the locker room. Great job, man. We're one step closer. Like, we flipping did it. And I'll never forget that moment because it defined everything that as a team-oriented player I had worked for. And I was a meaningful part of that team. And I had been injured the two previous years. I finally stay healthy year three, and that happens to be the year we win the Super Bowl. I'm not, those are the facts now. I'm just saying, I stay healthy, we get it done. That's all I'm saying now. But jokes aside, it, it was, I got to be a part of it. And as somebody that always wants to be a meaningful part of a team, I'm not it. I just wanted to be part of it. And I was a big part of what we were able to accomplish as a team. And that is the moment at the end of the game when it was over that really defined just how special of a team and a moment that that was. How does that moment change for the following year when it goes in the other direction? I don't know if I've ever cried that hard in my life after a football game, but uh, losing Super Bowl 32 in San Diego to the Denver Broncos, and that was the Terrell Davis show. We had some D linemen um, that didn't play in that game, so we had some guys that were playing out of position, and they just took advantage of it. When we zagged, they zigged. When we zigged, they zagged. So we struggled to stop the run defensively and offensively. Uh, it took us to about the middle of the third quarter to get our bearing straight. We opened the game and walked right down the field, got a touchdown, and we thought this was going to be easy. And I think leading up to that game, we thought it was going to be easy because it was a 14-point uh, spread, which was the largest ever in the history of the Super Bowl at the time. 
And because we had been there and done that the year before, because we knew how hard it was, we felt that that experience was going to be enough to get us over the hump. And that just certainly wasn't the case. So to fall short at the end and be so close and to score 28 points and lose a Super Bowl and to realize, again, how close of a missed opportunity that was, was devastating. So as hard as I cried after the game, and there were many of us in there that were in tears because we knew how close we had been. And we knew at that point that it was probably going to start sliding the other way, that that was the peak for us. And Denver was a good team, but if we played them 10 times, we all felt like we would have beat them nine. But the one time it mattered, to their credit, man, they got it done. And it was a very sad and quiet post-game, you know, party and reception that we had in the locker room nobody really said a word you know Tom Lovato offensive line coach came up to us you know patted me on the head I I happened thank God to play particularly well that game so as sad as I was I slept well that night I'd given everything I had I'd luckily had played well um, but unfortunately we came up a little bit short so two very different experiences after a Super Bowl, obviously, when you win one and you lose one, but a lot of lessons to be learned from each. So I basically became a Denver Broncos fan then and continue <laughs> to be one now because of the end result. So thanks, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I'm liking you less and less. John. Yeah, I, we'll cut that. We'll cut that from the final product. <laughs> I'm guessing then when you made the move to the San Diego Chargers to close out your career, we had spoken about this on ACC radio, about the differences in the locker room at the time, the differences of where both organizations were at. A difficult decision then to, to make that move to San Diego from Green Bay? Not really. Um, they had a guy behind me named Marco Rivera that ended up being a multi-year pro bowler and was frankly quite a bit play, better player than I was. They Green Bay offered for me to stick around, but it basically was at the same salary that it would have been my rookie contract. And San Diego was making an offer to pay me three times that. Right. So they weren't telling me to go, but you know they were making sure the door was wide open. And there were no hard feelings there. I, I think at first it kind of I felt slighted, but I, that was the lesson that I learned that it's a business and the bottom line's the bottom line. And, you know, with the benefit of hindsight now being in my mid forties, they would have been foolish not to, you have to make decisions. I was well-liked and respected in that organization, but Marco was a better player. So they paid the guy and, and knew that they had him on his rookie deal. Why overpay me a guy that had ruptured both his patella tendons in year one and two, and they've got a completely healthy, fresh guy who they were really excited about that played, you know, seven, eight, ten years for him. So th it made sense. So when I went out to San Diego, it was a no-brainer. They played on grass. It was back in California. They had, you know, the, the first pick of the draft, the second pick of the draft. They take Ryan Leaf, this hotshot quarterback out of uh, Washington State. They had a defense led by Junior Seau and Rodney Harrison. And like, what's there not to like? And you're going to pay me how much? Well, it's peanuts compared to what these guys are getting paid today. And, and God bless them. I'm, I'm happy that they have that opportunity. But it was uh, largely a money grab for me. It was free agency and, and leveraging the opportunities that I had. I made some really good friends here, but it was uh, not the way that I wanted to end my athletic career on a on a down note. I think we went one and 15 my first year and finished eight and eight uh, my second year. 
that was also against Denver. So the last football game I've ever played in my life was in Mile High Stadium against Broncos, the team that dethroned us. So towards the end of that game, my center, Roman Fortin, uh, who was a very good friend of mine and my room dog on the road, uh, saw my, my eyes starting to well up. And he and I had been having some discussions about whether or not this was going to be, you know, my last year, whether I was going to hang it up. My body was just breaking down. And he looked at me and he said, you're done, aren't you? And I said, yeah. And I just crumpled, man. He gave me a big hug and told me I was a warrior and that it was an honor to play next to me. And um, I lost it at that point. And it just all of the pressure and stress, but also the hard work and the commitment and the sacrifice of my entire life from the time I was a sophomore in high school until that moment as a grown man in my late 20s was geared towards playing that game. And I was a grown man playing a child's game, but that moment was one that I knew would be defining for me because it meant the end of my playing days in the sport of football. So Roman goes and runs in with the rest of the team for the post-game speech. And, I mean, it was a heck of a game. We rushed for 200-plus yards. Uh, it was against the Denver Broncos, which was a team that, you know, beat us in the Super Bowl. And it was the way that I wanted to go out. And so I decided to soak it in. And I could hear people walking on the metal stands. And I closed my eyes, and I just sat down on our bench. And I just soaked everything up. Like tactically, I picked up grass. I smelled the grass. I slowly unwrapped the dirty, bloody tape off my fingers. I wanted to hear the sounds. I wanted to, to see the sights. I wanted to smell the smells. I wanted to soak up and absorb everything that football meant in that moment to the best of my ability. And of course, what I was really trying to do was to hold on to it for as long as I could. But that was the start of a long process of, of letting that game go. And what's so hard for many of us is we end up loving a game that in the end doesn't love us back in its ability to allow us to participate in it full time infinitely. All of us have some point where our bodies just give out and we have to form this new relationship with the greatest game ever created, like I've done as a college football analyst or just a fan or as a coach, um, those sort of things. And when I look back on that moment, I was proud. I was proud of what I had done, what I had accomplished. Are there things I would have done different? Hell yeah. But maybe not given everything that I learned from some of those missteps that I had and the transgressions of my youth. But at the end of the day, when it came time to hang my helmet up, I did so in pride. And I'll never forget that day. I'll never forget my career. And I'll never forget all of the things that this great sport has provided for me. Well, thankfully, I have enough to have you back on to the show. And you could actually be referred to as Mr. Taylor, the teacher, instead of... <laughs> Mr. Aaron Taylor, the college football <laughs> broadcaster, but we'll save that for another day. I wanted to close briefly with a quick segment I try to do at the end of these interviews called Easy or Pass, and they're just some quick-hitting questions based on some of the different things that we talked about. You could pass on them, but hopefully they're good enough where we can see where we can go from there. The first one, in regards to Super Bowl 31, were you worried that Don Beebe would give you guys bad luck? Because, you know, four losses in a row, he came to you guys with the Packers. Was there any like, hey, dude, is this you or are we going to be good? 
No, that's easy, man. Don was a great teammate. He was one of two players that had Super Bowl experience, Jim McMahon being the other one. So very early in the process, Holmgren had both of those guys get up and talk to us about the difficulties and the unique set of circumstances around the game that on media day, you'd be giving interviews to Japanese reporters with a translator and all these other crazy things that just never happen unless you're playing in an iconic event like that. So Don was a great player and uh, uh, certainly a great teammate, but uh, we didn't feel like he brought us bad luck because he made some heck of a plays for us to even get to that Super Bowl that year. So we were glad to have him on the roster. Super Bowl 31. That season, Brett Favre is the National Football League MVP. How much shit does Desmond Howard give you that he won the MVP for the Super Bowl? Be honest. I, I don't think he does. I mean, he, he scored 14 points, and, and that's how much we won by. Desmond had a direct impact on that iconic game, but shit, we're all on our couches watching if Brett Favre doesn't play that year. And, and there wasn't probably a better individual performance at any position that season, which is why he took home that coveted award, one of three that he would get while in Green Bay. And I was on the field for two of those three with him, you know, Super Bowl 31, that 1996 season uh, among them. So Desmond, you know, for a Michigan guy, he certainly likes to take maybe a little bit more credit and remind us all of that. Um, See, that's what I I was going to say. This question is more for your Notre Dame. He's Michigan. Now I'll ask the question. What does he give you for getting that Super Bowl MVP? Like, oh, yeah, big tough guy on the line, Brett Favre at the quarterback position. I did the Heisman pose. Now I got the Super Bowl MVP. I mean, he's he's got you there. That's a pretty nice resume. It, it's a damn nice resume. And I was a little bitter and a little mixed emotion because uh, I, I remember distinctly him hitting that Heisman pose and how painful that was to watch. So that was among the first things I said to him when uh, he joined the team. And we obviously had some good-natured Notre Dame-Michigan rivalry and had some fun. And now we're contemporaries and covering the sport that we both enjoy. But um, I, I think – more than anything, it's good-natured ribbing, but the rivalry and the passion and, you know, fans wanting to stab the, the fan bases of other teams and their, their arch rivals, that just doesn't exist nearly as much uh, amongst the players. It's more of a good-natured ribbing and, you know, having some fun with those sort of things. And Desmond was a great teammate, but uh, clearly it should have been the left guard number seven <laughs> the MVP. Is that, I mean, that's what I'm saying. The tape will show you. The only good-natured ribbing question I have for this quickly is more Heinekens before you were drafted or after you were actually drafted on draft day? Well, technically before because we didn't go out after the draft. Well, I'll take that back. It was certainly after. And that it was a two-day affair is kind of how that all went. And then I had to sober up to get to minicamp, I think, three or four days later. So that would become an ongoing theme for Aaron Taylor's professional career. <laughs> but luckily, I smartened up and got off the Heineken and, and started, you know, putting my pinky up and, and drinking other stuff. But uh, that was a uh, that was a, an interesting 24 to 48 hours. And I'll tell you this story. So I get drafted to Green Bay. And I don't know anything about the organization. I, I don't know who Brett Favre is or Ron Wolf or Mike Holmgren, West Coast offense. We didn't watch the NFL in college, certainly most of the Notre Dame guys, because we had practice or were catching up on school and doing those sort of things. 
So I don't know anything about the organization, but I did grow up in Lou Holtz's system, which tells you you have to answer questions respectfully and give people time. Even if you're annoyed with all the questions as a first round draft pick, you got to, you know, talk to the reporters. So I get on to the, the elevator and I'm finishing up some interviews surrounded by about six or seven reporters. And this tall guy with a mustache walks on and says, hey, Aaron, how you doing? I'm Mike, you know, welcome to the team. I said, hey, Mike, hey, how you doing? He starts to ask me a couple other questions. I said, hey, excuse me, I, I don't want to be rude, but I want to finish these interviews. So I go up and there's a couple other players, a couple other people on the uh, elevator and get off. And I don't think anything of it. So I go to my room and I come back down and, you know, we're going to catch the buses and go over to practice. And one of the vets comes up to me and goes, you're a ballsy mother scratcher. I'm like, what? He's like, I can't believe you blew Mike off like that. I'm like, Mike, who is he said, the guy in the elevator? I'm like, oh, the big guy? I was like, who is that? He said, that's Mike Homer and our head coach, you dumbass. And it was like in the movies where the background kind of suddenly zooms up next to the person. It gets all out of focus. It was like in that instant, I got vertigo. And I'm like, oh, my God, I just blew off the head coach. It, it, how did I not know that? I was like, no. So from that point forward, it became, oh, my God, how do I get this toothpaste back in the tube and recover from this epic fumble of this first encounter with my head coach? And he and I never got along. And I largely think it was because of that first interaction where he thought this hot shot first rounder was going to blow him off because he loved the media and was doing interviews. And it couldn't have been any more the opposite. And to make matters worse, I go down in June with a ruptured patella tendon and don't even play that year. And they have to put me on IR. So, yeah, uh, I didn't get Christmas cards from Mike Homerin back then. And I don't think I'll be getting any anytime soon either. Thank God for that Super Bowl trophy then. <laughs> Thank God. Yeah, <laughs> we, we have that goal for us. Aaron, it's been a pleasure getting to hear your stories. It's been a pleasure getting to hear more on a work-related note, but in this atmosphere here, having you peel back the curtain on some of the different things you've been able to do, leading us to even more discussion for farther down the road. Lastly, just to get people to keep an eye out for you this season for college football analysis, where can they mostly find you when it comes to the football games you'll be covering and different things you'll be doing with CBS and beyond? Well, I've been with CBS Sports Network. I think this is going to be my 11th season, our flagship show inside college football with Sirius XM superstar and sidekick to Chris Childers. Rick Neuheisel's on there with Brian Jones, Adam Zucker, uh, Randy Cross, college football Hall of Famer. So that's our studio show Tuesday nights, I think, at 9 o'clock. I should probably know that. Uh, also call Mountain West games uh, in September and October and do the SEC doubleheaders with Carter Blackburn, who's been a good buddy for many, many years um, on CBS. Uh, and that's, uh, that's the, basically it. And on Mondays and Wednesdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius uh, XM on the ACC Today channel. So uh, I'm kind of all over. You can follow me at Twitter at Aaron Taylor CFB. And or if you're ever in San Diego and like to fish, look me up. Let's get some lines wet. Awesome. That's also hashtag breaking news for Sirius XM <laughs> ACC today. So look at that. We're making things happen in the media. And now people know your voice. They'll know what you look like. Everything will be dandy. And you and I, I'm sure both can't wait for college football season to actually get here. Thank you so much for your time, sir. I really appreciate it. Awesome, John. 
Thanks again to Aaron for jumping on the show. We'll close out the show with another installment of Five Minutes in the Film Room with Joe Burris. Joe and I have been teammates on the basketball court, sports editors for our college newspaper that is no longer in literal print and host for the prestigious John and Joe Sports Show, which was once found on 99.5 WUSR Scranton and the Royal Television Network. Joe usually sees more movies in a year than the 52 weeks within it to hold the reins here, but don't worry, there aren't any plot spoilers, so you'll still be able to see these films just with a better understanding of what will be in store if you do so, along with Joe's final rating of the film compared to something or someone in the sports world. This week... Joe will break down Mission Impossible Fallout, which Rotten Tomatoes describes, The best intentions often come back to haunt you. Mission Impossible Fallout finds Ethan Hunt and his IMF team, along with some familiar allies in a race against time after a mission gone wrong. You can find Joe on Twitter. He's at Duke Mish. That's D-U-K-E-M-I-C-H. You can also read his movie reviews, previews, and ratings at cupofdashjoe.com. Again, that's cup of dash or hyphen or whatever you like to call it, joe.com. Get your popcorn ready. Here's this week's edition of Five Minutes in the Film Room with Joe Burris. What's up, everybody? I'm Joe Burris, and this is Five Minutes in the Film Room. The Mission Impossible franchise has had a similar upbringing to The Fast and the Furious. While the difference in quality is extreme, the movies keep getting better and better. Much like 2001's The Fast and the Furious, the Mission Impossible franchise kicked off with a solid origin film in 1996. 2000's Mission Impossible 2 is trash and almost derailed the franchise. The movie could have been a half hour shorter if there was no slow motion. Six years later, Mission Impossible 3 found its footing, inserting the series' best villain played by the late Philip Seymour Hoffman. If you remember what 2011's Fast Five did for the Fast and the Furious franchise, 2011's Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol did the same, reigniting the Ethan Hunt saga with its breathtaking stunt on the Burj Khalifa in Dubai, which is the tallest building in the world. Four years later, Furious 7 tried a skyscraper stunt of its own in Abu Dhabi, jumping a car from tower to tower. Also in 2015, Mission Impossible got its dream pairing, Tom Cruise with writer-director Christopher McQuarrie, for the fifth installment, Rogue Nation. The franchise has never been better, again with the addition of another ridiculous stunt, where Tom Cruise actually hangs off the side of an airplane. Rogue Nation also added one of my favorite characters in the franchise, Ilsa Faust, played by Rebecca Ferguson. Despite the financial success of the Fast and the Furious franchise, the quality has slipped a bit. That's understandable. It's tough to make a franchise stick, coming up with new ideas and topping the previous film. This is also no easy task for the Mission Impossible franchise. But for Mission Impossible Fallout, the sixth film in the franchise, Tom Cruise is back doing his own stunts. Production was actually delayed because he got hurt. Christopher McQuarrie is back to write and direct, and Rebecca Ferguson reprises her role as Ilsa Faust. You also have the addition of Superman himself, Henry Cavill, and Angela Bassett, and the return of Simon Pegg, Ving Rhames, Alec Baldwin, Michelle Monaghan, and Sean Harris. Because of all this, I knew Mission Impossible Fallout would be throwing haymakers to try to top my favorite movie of the franchise, Rogue Nation. But could the franchise do it yet again? Let's go to the tape. What amazes me about this franchise is how it manages to still keep you on the edge of your seat throughout, even though you've had five movies beforehand that give you an idea of how it will end. Like I said before, this movie was throwing haymakers. Somehow everything was bigger than before. Let's start with the stunts and the big action set pieces. Whatever you think about Tom Cruise, he is one of the most devoted actors in Hollywood. 
He will do all of his stunts, which makes the director's job that much easier, because he or she doesn't have to shoot around a stuntman. It also makes the movie more realistic. In a movie called Mission Impossible, you'd be surprised how long away that goes toward the success of the franchise. From Tom Cruise and Henry Cavill jumping out of a plane into a lightning storm, Tom Cruise jumping onto a helicopter, Tom Cruise and Rebecca Ferguson topping a motorcycle sequence from Rogue Nation, a helicopter dogfight, and so much more. The action sequences were the best they have ever been in a franchise that consistently shoots great action. It was like watching The Raid 2 and realizing it somehow topped The Raid. I tip my cap to everyone involved. There was one point in the movie where I just sat back in my chair in awe. I couldn't believe how well shot and edited these scenes were. I'd give an A++ to the action, direction, and cinematography. A lot of fun, much like the Fast and the Furious franchise, comes from the team, the characters. I'm always happy to go back to them because you continue to care more and more about them in each film. And this is a hell of a cast, which I mentioned earlier. Henry Cavill is the addition with the biggest impact, and I'm really happy to see him get a role like this because I enjoy him as an actor. And after the whole mustache fiasco of Justice League, it was nice to see Mission Impossible Fallout didn't let him shave his facial hair because it was a much better movie than Justice League. He's solid in his supporting role and absolutely packs a punch. Sean Harris is a really good villain, and I'm glad they brought him back. Just his acting and the way he talks just makes you feel uneasy. It works really well. The character I was a little disappointed in was Ilsa Faust. They didn't really do anything different with the operative played by Rebecca Ferguson. She's just kind of doing the same stuff from the previous film, but even to a lesser scale. I feel like Rogue Nation led us to believe that she's an even better agent than Ethan Hunt, and here she sort of regressed. Granted, they had a lot of ground and characters to cover over the 2 hour, 27 minute runtime, but it was just disappointing that she was one of the characters that had to suffer from it. I mean, she still has good moments. I was just expecting a little more. While we're on the gripes, the plot was predictable and not on the level of the previous films. Again, it's understandable on the sixth movie in the franchise. Also, I don't think either of these things took away from the film. They are more so nitpicks to help me determine which is the best film in the franchise. And I still think that's Rogue Nation. But I've only seen Fallout once, and after one viewing, I think it is the second best film in the franchise. The bottom line, Mission Impossible Fallout is easily one of the best films of the year and one of the best action movies of the decade. It gives us beautifully shot action with expert stunt work by leading man Tom Cruise. It manages to keep you on the edge of your seat despite you having a pretty good idea of how the film's going to end. The cast is stellar and at the same time doesn't feel overcrowded. It's probably the most engaged I've been with a movie in the theater since last year's Best Picture nominee, Dunkirk. It's an absolute thrill ride that makes 2 hours and 27 minutes feel like a breeze. Sure, there are nitpicks like mismanagement of Rebecca Ferguson and the predictability of certain plot points, but it accomplished what it set out to do, and then some. It met my high expectations and became one of the top movies in a franchise that was already filled with greatness. I'll compare Mission Impossible Fallout to DeMarcus Cousins signing with the Golden State Warriors. Before the signing, the Warriors had won their second straight championship and third in four years. Then, Golden State added another all-star when Boogie signed. I don't know how this is going to work out for them, but if Boogie brings to the Warriors dynasty what Mission Impossible Fallout brought to the franchise, the league's in a lot of trouble. Sexy. Check! Uh, check please.
That's going to do it for The Bridge. You can listen to this show and all previous shows over on my website at londonbridge.com. That's L-U-N-D-I-N-B-R-I-D-G-E. You can also follow me on Twitter under that same handle, at London Bridge. You can find The Bridge on iTunes by searching for The Bridge Sports Podcast. There you'll find the newest episodes of The Bridge every Wednesday night. And also, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. You can also find The Bridge on Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn. And can listen to a brand new show on Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time by searching for Sports Radio America on TuneIn. In the next installment of The Bridge, we'll dive into Major League Baseball, dabble in the NBA, circle the wagons of the National Football League, and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve. On The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports.